Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. It was that side of Sybil that I loved, the brooding recluse, the half that probably made us possible in the first place. She used to joke that I was the only person she ever met who moved to New York just to stay inside. This program features the work of 2011 writer Robert Lamorand. He discussed his work with curator Susan Rich. Where do your ideas for writing come from? I read an essay once about metaphors coming from this black bag in your imagination and that you have no idea what's going to come from that until you reach in and grab something. And I feel like ideas for stories are the same way. I'll be sitting down at breakfast, eating a bowl of granola, and I'll just say, oh my God, what if I found a snail that talked to me and was like my best friend? And I, I don't know. They're just kind of these little trains of thought that snag in the brain. And the, the quirky ones that seem like there's more to them are the ones that stick with me and the ones that I feel like I have to put on the paper. So. Maybe I should be praying to the writing gods because every so often they, they send me something. Who is your ideal reader? Who are you writing to? I guess my ideal reader is somebody who wants to feel something. I said earlier that I think that the, the greatest thing a piece of fiction can do is communicate an emotional understanding. And so people that are open to that experience are the people that I'm writing for, people that want to leave themselves um, either for recreation or for that life-saving quality fiction has. Those are the people that I want to write for, people that want to learn what something else feels like, something outside of their experience. Now we'll hear a selection from Robert's live reading. It's good to be embarrassed for going on stage. So the piece I'm going to be reading for you guys tonight uh, is what I wrote for Jack Straw. And uh, I had the idea for this story from something my ex-girlfriend said. She told me that she heard part of the reason they were having with panda bears mating and producing offspring was that they spent so much time around people, they were becoming sexually attracted to humans. <laughs> and I don't know if this is actually true or not, but it really stuck with me. And I wanted to write a story about someone who was very lonely and, uh, the, and was trying to establish an emotional connection, but the only creature that wanted to do that was this panda bear at the zoo where he worked. Uh, and when um, my girlfriend and I actually broke up, I started working on this. And it became a little bit less silly, but what I found was a parallel between uh, the panda and David, who's my main character, uh, in that they both spend a lot of time in close proximity to other people, but they can't seem to bridge a physical or emotional connection. And there's kind of a sense of being behind glass, which I think you'll see here. And this is about halfway through the story, and we're going to find David having just gone out to a bar with Mo and his friend Wesley, um, both friends of his, and Mo in particular was trying to introduce him to someone that she thought that, they, that he would get along with. But he very clearly said he wasn't interested. And so we find the two of them at work at the zoo. Next time I saw Mo at work, she was in a pretty foul mood. I asked her if it was something I said or did, because I'm prone to think bad things happen because of what I say or do. It wasn't, she said. She just got like this. A black cloud had descended over Mo and filled her heart with soot. She left before I could join her for smoke breaks, didn't offer to pick me up a coffee when she disappeared to the Croc Cafe. And so I was alone. Each night I'd get home earlier than I was used to, only to realize I couldn't stand my apartment anymore, couldn't bear the sudden remembrance that half my brain was missing. I took long showers and tried to fall asleep before nine, but for hours I'd lay awake, convincing myself I was on the verge of sleep until finally I would test my eyelids and find them all too ready to spring back open. 
After about a week, I had come to that deadly point in which I didn't want to read or watch TV, opting instead for the media of my mind, those cruel rehashings of last year's best moments with Sybil, a self-pity highlight reel. I ended up each time on our first date when I'd taken her to the zoo. She liked all the animals, but it was the fruit bats that she loved the most. We got there just after they had been fed, pieces of banana, lettuce, peach, and melon strewn across the floor. The bats fluttered down, retrieved their meals, and darted back up to hang from the ceiling's netted surface. Oh, isn't that fascinating, she said, watching the expertise with which the bats manipulated food into their mouths. It's something, I said. <laughs> We hadn't talked much during the date, even at that point I could tell we didn't have much in common. But right then she did something very wonderful and peculiar. She held my hand. And right as I could feel the touch of her slim fingers and my big calloused hands, the sensation would fade back into loneliness, the sharp return to the fact that there was no one else in my house, my life, or my future, that my fat ass would probably die alone. Little, she used to call me. Then one day, Mo is back to her old self, giving me shit, complaining about the customers, bitching about the animals even. Fucking Sun Bear thinks he's so goddamn cool. <laughs> At one point, near the end of our respective shifts, she apologized. I'm sorry I got upset last night, she said. It's not my business. She had caught me just outside the panda exhibit, and already the sky was dark, winter threatening to skip fall entirely this year. I wanted to ask Mo what she meant exactly about her business. I wanted to unload on her, to tell her I hadn't slept all week, how I'd been watching home movies in my head like an insane person, how I thought, as a friend, she was supposed to be there for me. But I didn't. I didn't know how she'd take it, and it wasn't worth risking another week without someone, so I told her it was okay. Big easy, she called me. Yeah, I told her, that's me. Then that same night, Sybil called. It was like a concussion, when the world suddenly rotates a quick 90 degrees beneath you and like Wile E. Coyote realize there's nothing underfoot and so you plummet straight down, a neat little ring of cloud hanging like a halo above your head. Hello? David, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Are you okay? She laughed. Of course I'm okay. I got your text the other night. I had folded around 1 a.m. two nights previous, wrote, I think about you every day. You did? Mm-hmm. Her tone was casual, as if my text had been an old pair of socks I'd forgotten at her place long ago. <laughs> so, how have you been? How's the zoo? Good, I said. David, I miss you. Really? And then there was silence. Sybil, are you there? But she was not. It was several days until I heard back from Sybil. Are you home? I'm in the neighborhood. I was thinking of stopping by. Yeah, I said, sitting up from the couch, batting a pizza box from its repose on my chest. Just let yourself in. I had only slept for a few hours, and so my brain was still thick with sleep waves, but I managed to bag up most of the takeout debris in the living room and throw myself into the shower. Somewhere between shampooing and waking up entirely, I heard the lock slide and click, the door groan open. I dried and dressed quickly, put on the dark blue polo Sybil had once described as slimming, wiped away what sleep still stuck to my eyes. She hated that, was always spotting some I missed. I opened my bedroom door and found her leaning against the kitchen counter, leafing through my mail as casually as she would a fall catalog. She was immaculate in tall leather boots, dark jeans, a gray sweater that collapsed into small waves of fabric around her waist. Her oaken hair was straight today, not a strand astray on her lovely head. Hey, little, she said, and my heart melted like butter in the microwave. How's it going? I shrugged from beneath my trance. It's good. This place looks sad, little, 
She smiled as she said it, retreated into the kitchen. She opened the fridge. Not cooking many vegetables these days? Haven't been cooking much at all. Somebody doesn't know how to cook, do they? You were always at half of my brain. She laughed. Sybil was strictly anti-sentimental. She was one who had broken me of the term making love. I can still do fried eggs, I offered. While I cooked, Sybil inspected the rest of the place. She didn't ask what I'd been doing, so I asked her instead, and she bemoaned work, her few friends, her social life. It was that side of Sybil that I loved, the brooding recluse, the half that probably made us possible in the first place. She used to joke that I was the only person she ever met who moved to New York just to stay inside. <laughs> been on any hot dates, I asked. One, she said, nothing special. And then, before I could torture myself with further questions about what the date had been like, who the guy had been, if she had fucked him yet, she said, I'm sorry I dialed you the other night. When you said you missed me? Yeah, using the same tone she used when half apologizing for being late. I was at a concert and I wasn't having a very good time. Anyway, I'm sorry. It's okay. I flipped her egg, broke the yolk on accident. You don't have to apologize. No, I feel bad. I don't want to give you the wrong idea. No, it's no worries, I said. Little, trying to draw me from the settling gloom. Little. But it was no use. The tunnel was lengthening and I was at the end of it, weightless and alone. I was a mess when I got to work. I'd been crying on my walk from the bus stop to the gate, and though I finally got my shit together before I saw anyone, my nose and throat were still full of snot, and my eyes felt about two sizes too big. When Mo saw me, she wrapped her arms around my neck. She didn't even ask what had happened. I got through work okay. Mo popped by when she could, but she didn't tease me at all, kept to quips about the customers and management. By the end of my shift, she had me laughing even, and when I was all wrapped up for the day, she invited me along for her last cigarette. We leaned against the car, one of the few in the lot, the only people in sight. It was uncanny, like we were the last people alive in New York. That's how it feels any time you manage to find yourself alone, when you realize that a city block is actually empty. I told Mo this, and she smiled. I like to think I'd make a pretty badass apocalypse survivor. You've got the look. Maybe just to put some blood right there. I thumbed her cheeks like I was applying quarterback war paint. I'm sorry, Dave, but you look a little too soft for post-apocalyptia. I think we'd have to do something drastic, like... And she drew her thumb along my forehead, the sensation like dripping water. An orchestration of chills reverberated throughout my entire body. Can you feel it? It's an anarchy sign, I said. What? You could actually tell? No, I just figured. Thanks for cheering me up today. She fake punched me in the gut. Anytime, Big Easy. And, wanting to roll the enormous stone from my chest, I said, It's been a weird week. I had lunch with Wesley the other day, right? How is he? What? How's your friend? Did he ever call that girl from the bar? I looked at Mo, the smoke rolling over her darkly painted lips, moonlight caught on her septum ring, the huge fuck-you eyes. I kissed her, and she was the taste of smoke. Fuck, she said. Fuck, David. Fuck, 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 fuck. And then she was gone. She didn't even have to run. I couldn't move from where I stood. Thank you. Sound Pages was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2011 curator of this program is Susan Rich. Music performed by Grand Hallway and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventer, Tom Stiles, and C.J. Lazenby. Narrator is Alyssa Keene, 
and executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.